Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultraspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me. My trusty co-host, Steve Ovens. Welcome to the program, sir. Hey, Noah. How's your week going? Oh, it has been fantastic. I haven't had to travel this week, so there's been no crazy scheduling stuff. It's just been get up and, and do work, which is kind of a change for me from the past. We'll get straight into the feedback this hour. Aaron writes in and he says, Hi, Noah. I'm writing into you today to ask about Thunderbolt docs. I know in a previous episode... I remember you mentioning that you use a Lenovo Thunderbolt dock, but I don't remember the model. I'm a fan of Lenovo, and as a recent switcher to the Frameworks laptop for my trusty T440, I'm in need of a new dock with Thunderbolt support. I've looked online at a few docks, but I'm hesitant to buy one that's not guaranteed to work with Linux. As I run Kubuntu 2104 on the Framework laptop, any help or ideas or suggestions on the matter would be awesome. Cheers, Aaron. So I have routinely, t- so first of all, I have tried probably every Thunderbolt dock out there. I've tried all of the Dells. I've tried uh, the OWC one that's primarily set up for Macs. And the one that I've li- landed on time and time again, regardless of the maker model computer that you're using it with, uh, is the Thunderbolt dock now, or the, the Lenovo Thunderbolt dock. So I wish there was a more fancy model name for the Lenovo Thunderbolt dock, but really they just call it the Lenovo USA Thunderbolt uh, 3 dock. And then now they have the Lenovo ThinkPad Thunderbolt dock Gen 2. Now here's what I really like about the Gen 2 over the Gen 1. The Gen 1 had the displays ganged together. So the most you could drive was two displays. Now I believe, not that I've tested, but I believe there are two independent displays so you can have display port hdmi and then on the remaining two display ports where there's one one's display port and one is hdmi those are then ganged together so i think they've added a third display that you can drive off of your laptop now i ordered the gen 2 it's it's here it's sitting at, in the ultra speed technology sandbox i've not unpacked it or played with it yet so i don't know that for sure but here's what i can tell you for sure if you're looking for a Thunderbolt dock that is going to work flawlessly under Linux, then the the Lenovo one is definitely the one you want to go with. I was actually having a conversation with Steve when I was at his house. I walked into to his uh, to his office area and I noticed he was using a desktop and we had a little we had a short conversation on uh his choice of a desktop. And the reason I asked him that was because I have switched from using a desktop to only using Thunderbolt devices. So I have Thunderbolt on my work laptop, I have Thunderbolt on my personal laptop, and then I have a standby Thunderbolt laptop that that stays at my house. And so when I need to, when I just walk downstairs into my room and want to do work, there's the standby one that's there and it's connected and everything just works. But when I need to get some work done, I can disconnect that computer and I can plug in my Thunderbolt work laptop and now takes over both my 2K displays, 
my keyboard, my mouse, my good speakers, all the things are just automatically connected. Uh, and then I have a second Thunderbolt dock behind me. So I've got two workstations. And so if I have my personal computer on one and my work computer on the other, I can just spin my chair around and use both of them. And then when I travel, I actually have a small little, I have a Thunderbolt dock and a small little portable desk that I take with me. And so if I'm going to be at a client deployment for a week or two, I'll take that and I'll set it up there. All of those are using Lenovo Thunderbolt 3 docks as well as that's what we've given to all of our our tech guys at AltaSpeed and nobody has had an issue with it. We recently uh, served a client there, an engineering firm, and they actually went out and purchased a bunch of ThinkPads and a bunch of ThinkPad Thunderbolt docks. And so all of their people, when they come in in the morning, they dock their laptop, they plug it in. By the way, they're all running Linux, plug in their Linux laptops, away they go, and they work off of their Thunderbolt docks all day. It was the first time ever, by the way, I've ever gone to a client uh, site and been able to dock and have two screens and a keyboard and a mouse and a monitor and wired Ethernet and the whole nine yards. Very cool. Uh, works flawlessly with every distribution of Linux I've ever used with it, as well as we have a client using MacBooks, and they've uh, we've connected a bunch of MacBooks to the Thunderbolt Lenovo docks and had no issues uh, with them either. So check it out. We'll have a link for you for the Gen 2 in the show notes. Uh, you can learn more at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our second email comes in from Mark. Mark writes in and says, Noah, I'm a longtime listener of the show's podcast. I never miss a week. Thank you so much for the hard work to make this happen on a regular basis. I'm currently helping my church with a new building project, and I have a couple of questions about wireless access points. The church's sanctuary will seat about 220 with an additional 75 children in their department. We are thinking about putting two wireless access points in the sanctuary, which will serve as data for the use of the congregation, as well as consist of some social media and some mobile access for sermon notes. Additionally, we are thinking about placing one wireless access point in the entry hall for a portable special event check-in kiosk, and then placing a fourth wireless access point in the main hall leading up to the children's area for the department's check-in kiosk. What are your recommendations for access points? Will two access points in the sanctuary handle the congregate's demands? The longest run for POE will be around 150 feet, and I believe that distance is close to the limit over Cat 6. Will that distance be problematic? Do you have any additional input that comes to mind for our project? Thanks again for the great show. Blessings, Mark in Florida. So, a couple things there. Uh, you First of all, as far as models go, I would highly recommend the Unify UAPAC Pros. Um, those are managed access points. So what that means is you will either spin up a cloud controller or you can purchase a what they call the cloud key, uh, which is essentially the controller running on a tiny little arm board. The nice thing about that is when you go to use uh, the access points, all you have to do is configure the cloud the controller one time, and it will push all those changes out to all of your access points. Whereas if you have independently managed access points, you have to log into each one and modify the settings. As far as putting two access points in your sanctuary, Really what you're looking for, the correct answer is you want 20 dB of signal separation between each access point. And so the best way to do that is to download a little app called Wi-Fi Analyzer on your smartphone. And you would place one access point up and then you would go over to where you think you want to place the next access point and hold your phone up and get a reading on it. Now, if you want some distance to kind of spitball to get you started, I would recommend about 50 feet in a wide open area. That's about the spacing that you're going to need to get the uh, the separation that you need. Now, if you don't have that much space, I wouldn't recommend putting a second access point in there because if you put two access points too close together, 
the crosstalk, the interference, the noise between the two is actually going to cause more problems and it's going to help. Additionally, those access points, the Unify UAP AC Pros, are good up to 250 clients per access point. So unless, I mean, you're, if you said your, your sanctuary seats 220 uh, people, the chances that that isn't going to handle everyone is slim to none. As far as placing access points outside uh, the entry hall and the check-in, again, without seeing it, if you were to send a blueprint diagram to help at altaspeed.com, we would take a look at it for you and we could give you maybe some more detailed information on that's a good placement, not good placement. But again, what you're looking for is 20 dB of signal separation. And so when you start to get much more than that, then what you're going to, to deal with is a problem with handoff. So in the Unify system, when you roam from one access point to the other, in other words, the person is walking around with their phone and they walk out of the sanctuary and they walk into the hallway. If you have, if you have, uh, if they get below 70 dB, it's going to drop off of one access point rather than gracefully hand them over to another one. And so if they're on a call or they're streaming video or something like that, it's going to drop. So that's not really desirable. So we kind of want to stay in that sweet range. And I can't really tell you that without seeing a building schematic. But what I can tell you is that if you're just trying to get isolated Wi-Fi coverage in this area, in the sanctuary, in the check-in area, uh, putting four access points there will work just fine. I would also be interested, just as a kind of a follow-up, are you using Planning Center for your check-in? Not that it matters for your question. I'm just personally curious, so I'd be interested in hearing that. Um, you you ask about the distance of Cat 6, and so 150 feet is well within the capability of Cat 6. In fact, the distance limit for Cat 6 is 100 meters, so that's about 300 feet. So you could actually go almost twice that distance uh, without any problems. Now, Steve, you've heard some really great things about the TP-Link access points. Tell me about those. So a lot of the, uh, let's say, the influencers out there have been kind of pushing away from Unify for various reasons, um, which I, I did want to bring up just a point of clarification so just because their thing is called the cloud key doesn't mean that you actually have to manage things in the cloud. I have a Unify stuff here and I run it on a VM that has no access to the internet. But getting back to the TP-Link question, when Unify went and changed their terms of service so that they were starting to gather more metrics about your network, people started to react very negatively to that. And so TP-Link... Uh, essentially is very good at cloning the best parts of various competitors. And so their um, their brand, Amada, has really started to pick up the, the spillover from people who are unhappy with Unify. Now, I haven't used it myself, partly because um, I already bought into the Unify system, but I did take a look at it, and I think that uh, they look priced competitively, and I've watched several comparisons and i think you know uh, point for point they're really close yeah we've heard really good things about them on the show too a couple people have written in and 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 talked about their experience so definitely something to check out i uh, i also have not used them and as i've talked to other people that do larger deployments um i've not heard of anyone switching to those the people that i have heard feedback from are, are usually using them in smaller environments and so it'd be interesting to get some real world data on you know a, a few hundred users 
uh, working off of these things. But if you do go that route, let us know. If you do need any help, uh, we're always happy to, to serve you. And so if you need something more than I can answer here on a, on a, on a five-minute radio call, then give us a call. Give customer care a call at 866-280-1433 or send an email to support at altaspeed.com. And one of my team members would be happy to take care of you. Our third email comes in from Eric. Eric writes in and says, hey, Noah, I've been watching your show for a while, and I appreciate your views of hosting your own. Uh, everything. I concur and love being in control of my infrastructure. I currently have a single Cisco standalone 802.11n access point. I would like to upgrade to two access points. However, all I'm finding is cloud managed. I want the ability of 802.11ax Wi-Fi 6. I want VLANs per SSID. I want more coverage. I want handoffs when devices are moved around, and I want it managed on my own server. What access points would you suggest? Cost-wise, under $300 per access point would be awesome. Thanks for your help. So I'm going to reiterate what Steve said. Unify's product marketing is not really ideal here. They call it the cloud key when, in fact, it it's literally the opposite of a cloud key. It is a it. What they're trying to tell you is that it's all of the features of the cloud brought into a small little key that you put in your house, um, but or or business. But it, it literally all it is is a tiny little ARM computer, much like a Raspberry Pi, running Debian, and on top of that, the Unify controlling software on it. Um, and so it, again, if you went the Unify route, you could purchase that. It would be entirely self-hosted. You could also run the controller like Steve does inside of a VM. That would work just fine. Um, if you're looking for, I'm going to throw out another brand or another suggestion. Now, this is, so that that will meet your $300 per access point. If you say to me, hey, I am uncomfortable with what Unify is doing and I'm, I'm looking for something else, um, you might also look at Ruckus. And Ruckus is substantially more expensive than Unify. But one, some of the limitations that you run into with to with Unify is they only allow four SSIDs on an, on an access point. Now, there are some ways that you can cheat around that. But in general, Unify only supports four SSIDs. And so the problem is if you have more than four VLANs that you need exposed over an SSID and you don't specify here, then we're going to have a problem. Um, Ruckus has no such issue. In fact, Ruckus has a, has a rather cool, unique issue uh, or feature where you can specify a different pre-shared key that you give out to different people. And depending on what pre-shared key they use, it will, with one SSID, will drop them onto different VLANs. So for example, if I have the first uh, passphrase, Ask Noah Show, it might put me on the Ask Noah Show VLAN. If I have the second passphrase, phrase, UltaSpeed, it puts me on the UltaSpeed VLAN, even though I'm connected to wireless network as my SSID, both users are. But just depending on what password you use, it'll put you onto a different VLAN. So those are, and they, they don't have any limit on how many SSIDs or VLANs you can tie to that. So um, it's a little bit more of an advanced system. The problem is the access points start at like $1,000. And then on top of that, I don't know of them sending any network data back, but they do require a subscription fee to continue to get software updates. Now, the device will continue to work if you don't pay for it. So it's not like it, it's not like it's, it's a service per se, but you won't get firmware updates for your device. And so then that leaves your phone to attack and stuff like that. So anyway, hopefully that gives you some options. Steve, anything I'm missing, uh, with, with his, uh, 802.11ax, Wi-Fi 6, VLANs per SSID and, uh, and handoffs? No, I think that's, Pretty much where I landed, I I dropped the link in the show notes for the uh, Unify AP6 Lite because yeah. he didn't really specify um, any kind of 
specific requirements. So the light comes in at about a hundred bucks and you could easily deploy a couple of those. And uh, so I, I check out the light and then you could move to the full. Um, and again, I'm kind of biased here because I am in the Unify ecosystem. Yeah, me um, too. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. Yeah, but you know what, though? I've been happy with them and you can get around those network statistics. Um, I think they actually do have a UI button, but even when they didn't, you could you could SSH in and modify. There was a, a config file you could modify to, to prevent it from doing that. And the other thing is with a little bit of network know-how too, right? You you the, So all of my stuff, and it doesn't matter if it's Unify, it doesn't matter if it's Access, it doesn't matter what the manufacturer is. Unless that thing needs to get out to the internet, I don't let it get out to the internet. It just talks around my local network. Um, and that's true of almost all devices in my house. Uh, if they don't have, if they don't have a reason to talk on the internet, I just don't let them. So an access point is perfectly capable of passing through VLAN traffic that's going to the internet without itself ever having a default gateway. That's something to keep in mind as well. Our fourth email comes in from Rick. Rick writes in and says, hello, I've listened to all of the episodes since the Ask Noah show began. I appreciate the time and energy that goes into each and every episode and the focus on Linux and open source. My workstations and notebooks at work at home are all various Linux distros. I've been in IT for a long time, but I haven't had a lot of experience with audio. After my previous company was sold, the IT department was outsourced, and I found a great nonprofit organization which does some amazing work in the community. I'm now the IT manager, but I also in the IT department. It couldn't be a better fit for me. This year, I moved the company off its self-hosted PBX system onto a cloud one. This is where my project comes in and where I need some input. I now have a bunch of unused copper running to every hall and office and conference room. Using the wires of the CAT6 solid core, I soldered together some adapters which plug into RJ11 jacks. On one end, I have a 3.5-inch male audio connector, and on the other end, an RJ11 connector. Now I can use any of our old PC speakers and run them into adapters which plug into the RJ11 wall jacks. From the 66 blocks, I've soldered together a bunch of different adapters. One end has a male 3.5-inch audio connector, and the other I've left bare and punched down into the 66 block. For a server, I'm experimenting with Dark Ice and Icecast on an Ubuntu server at AirSonic on Docker. As far as I can tell, only plug in one at a time and the server's audio card. Currently, I've completed two lines. However, I'm not receiving audio on the speakers. I'm convinced I need an amplifier to push the signal through that much copper but I don't know what hardware I need to procure to connect to the 66 blocks. Currently, I'm terminating 3.5 connectors with the server's audio card, mixer, amp, switch. My question is, what hardware do I need to bridge the gap and connect that many lines to an audio server in the 66 block to boost the signal? Cost is a factor, so I'm hoping with your, ex your experience and your understanding of audio and the audio hardware, you can either tell me I'm way off base and this isn't going to work or what hardware I can use to make this project take off. Thanks in advance, Rick. So let's start here. Um, we'll start with your wiring and work our way back to how we feed the into the wiring. So if you're going to send a signal down a, a set of wires, the first decision you have to make if you're going to use unbalanced or a balanced signal. And that far, that over that kind of distance, you absolutely want to be using a balanced signal. So what's the difference? Well, when if we take two wires and we send a signal down just one of the wires, obviously that wire, after it gets long enough, begins to act as an antenna and starts to pick up spurious noise, which, of course, is then introduced into the speaker. And that's why you hear either, very commonly, you'll hear an AC 60 hertz hum, or you'll hear a local radio station or something like that. 
So what we do is we take two wires and we send the signal across both wires and then we invert the signal. Now you might say, what is the purpose of inverting the signal? Well, the reason is because on the receiving end, we're going to flip that inverted signal back into its original orientation. But because both copies of the signal picked up the same noise as they traveled along that cable, the noise is identical on the two wires. And so flipping the polarity of what arrives at the receiving end will produce the original signal without the noise. And so this is a this is how all professional audio places, if they're running wires over long distance, and I've seen radio stations and music studios and all sorts of things where they run hundreds of feet of balanced audio wire and they what what comes out on the other end is is a perfect signal. So if you're sending a signal, an audio signal, an unamplified signal, this is how you would do it. Um if and so I've included in the show notes a podcast.asnoahshow.com, there is a company called Studio Hub that makes adapters. You can just put an RJ45 end on each of your Cat6 cables, and then you can plug into the Studio Hub adapters, and they'll give you an XLR uh, or uh, or balanced quarter inch that you can send. So TRS. Now, if you go that route, you are going to need an amplifier on the speaker end of each side. So. Out of your, on the other end of your cable, you'll, you'll have a balanced audio signal and you'll have to plug that into an amplifier and then you'll plug your speakers into the amplifier. Now, if you wanted one amplifier to rule them all and you wanted the amplifier in a central location and you wanted to use the Cat6 as speaker wire, a couple of things. First, my word of caution, because the gauge of the wire is very small, you want to be careful that you don't burn the wire up. If you push too much power through those little wires, they're going to heat up and then they will melt. Um, and so you want to be cautious of that. It's not really designed to be used as speaker wire. But if you're using low audio background music, something like that, it can be done. And so what you would do in that scenario is you would either, if you wanted the same audio to go to all of the endpoints, you would use whatever you want to generate the audio. You would feed that into your amplifier and then you would plug the bare copper wires into the speaker output of the amplifier and thereby using the speaker, the uh, cat six as speaker wire. Now you can get a little bit more fancy if you want to, um, both monoprice and B and H photo and video, they will have multi-channel amplifiers. And what a multi-channel amplifier will allow you to do is send a different signal to each room. So let's say the conference room doesn't want to listen to the same audio as office number three, doesn't want to listen to the same audio as office number five. That can actually be done with a multi-channel amplifier. Now you've talked about a couple of different pieces of software that you've used or tried. You certainly could do that with streaming dark ice and, and so on and so forth. But the issue there is really those solutions are designed where you're trying to move audio across a network. If you're going either with a centralized solution, uh, what I would do is use something like Volumio. Volumio, you can flash onto a Raspberry Pi. You can control it with a web browser, and it actually has multi-zone support. So you could purchase four or five different Raspberry Pis, flash them all with Volumio, plug them into a multi-channel audio amplifier, and now you can pull the Volumio app up or launch it in a web browser and just pick what room do you want and what do you want to play in that room. And that's likely going to work. Now, that's a very difficult thing to try to explain over over a, in, a, in a radio show. So if that doesn't make sense, then write back in, ask me a couple more questions, or give me a call at 866-280-1433, and I'll try to help you out. I would love to do that. 
our fifth email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, G'day. I came across this program that some of the community may be interested in checking out. It's called SDR++, the Open Source Cross-Platform Ham Radio SDR Program. And then he links to the source code. It seems to be made by an 18-year-old German student, uh, and the program is about a year old. And so we'll have a link for you in the show notes if you are into ham radio and are interested in experimenting with doing that over software. This is a great way to do that. So we'll have a link for you in the show notes again, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is Bash Crawl. You can learn more at gitlab.com slash slackermedia slash bash crawl. Now, this is a game that teaches you the basics of using Post 6, Linux, BSD, Unix, so on and so forth. So to start playing, you open a terminal. You type in the letters CD, just like the letters, not the quotes, into the terminal. And then a space. Press the space bar. Then drag and drop the entrance directory from the folder into your terminal. If your terminal asks you what you want to do with this thing that you dragged into, you say paste location. If it doesn't ask, expect to paste the file path location of the folder that you just dragged in. Now once you've done that... Now in your terminal, you can press enter, and the exact path varies depending on, obviously, where you've saved this file. But once you've typed into the terminal cat scroll, you're now playing the game. And so it's a game that you can play inside of your terminal based around teaching you Bash. So I thought that would be kind of cool and definitely something you'll want to check out. Again, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Our gadget of the week this week is the Bangle JS. This is a hackable open source smartwatch. Specifically, Bangle.js uses the open source, I'm going to probably mispronounce this, Esprino JavaScript interpreter. This is a custom designed piece of software for devices with very low hardware resources like microcontrollers. Now, new apps can be written in JavaScript without an SDK or compiling additional software. They can be sent wirelessly via Bluetooth to the watch. In fact, to hack or connect to or install apps on the smartwatch, all you need is a modern web browser. So the Bangle.js is a crowdfunding campaign that is going to run on, uh, through, well, I should say ran through October 12th, and it's already smashed its initial crowdfunding goal Uh so you can pledge without reward or you can support from 59 euros to get a watch. Shipping is going to begin in mid-November. So if I was out there looking for a smartwatch, of course, my first choice would be the Pine Time. But this is definitely a, a, a contender. It, it does not look like your traditional cheap Chinese knockoff watch with an Apple face or an Apple watch face pasted on it. Um, and the fact that you can load apps and control it and do all the things from a browser is pretty cool. So. Make sure to check that out. Again, we'll have a link for you in the show notes, podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our next guest is the CEO and founder of ProtonMail. It is Dr. Andy Yen. He's been on the program before. We're excited to welcome him back. A lot of great things coming up from ProtonMail. Both Steve and myself are ProtonMail users. Dr. Andy Yen, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome into the program, sir. Hi, Noah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. So, uh, Andy, I want to start with Proton Calendar. It's now available uh, as a beta for Android. I've been playing with it as a Proton Mail subscriber, and it's I think it's absolutely fantastic, but I wanted to get your thoughts on this. How has the reception been, and what can we look forward to next with Proton Calendar? Calendar is not actually out yet, so I'm glad the beta is working uh, well for you. Um, I think there are still some bugs that we need to iron out, so it's definitely uh, still a work in progress. Um, you know, 
right now, we want to try to release products out to the community as soon as possible. Uh, so, you know, uh, we do anticipate being able to do a full and proper release of Calendar, uh, you know, later this year. Uh, of course, people are asking about iOS, uh, and we hope to follow up very quickly with the full iOS release, uh, you know, um, next year. That's fantastic. Can you talk a little bit about the technical specifications of how Calendar does or is intended to work long term? How does the encryption work? What things are private? Um, and can calendars, will calendars be able to be shared between users and does that still maintain privacy? Yeah, so calendar, at the end of the day, if you look at VPN, mail, uh, also our you know, drive file storage product, calendar is actually from a cryptography standpoint the most complex. Uh, and it's the most complex because we do want to have event and calendar sharing uh, that will come in the future version. And we built a crypto system to actually support you know, full encryption even in that, uh, e even even under sharing circumstances. So uh, in Calendar, we really went sort of you know all the way when it comes to encryption, right? Uh, you know, we literally encrypted everything that we could encrypt. In fact, the only thing that is not encrypted on Calendar uh, is the time of the event. Uh, everything else, in fact, is protected by encrypted encryption and also digitally signed. Uh, so I think it's, uh, to my knowledge, the only calendar that you know takes encryption to that extreme, uh, and it wasn't easy. So part of the reason why it's taking us so long to get it out uh, is because you have to manage you know all the complexity that comes with doing all that encryption uh, and creating calendars and events that actually can be shared without compromising the encryption. So how does the sharing work in tandem with encryption? The events are 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 those are those private keys, or is a private key exchanged with another Proton user so that they can have access to the calendar while keeping it encrypted? How does that work? Yeah. So uh, if you go to uh, our you know, blog, you can actually find a blog post that we've made, uh, you know, called the Calendar Security Model. And if you go through it, it actually goes, you know, very, very much in depth into, you know, um, all the crypto models, right? Uh, but to kind of give maybe the very, you know, short summary of that, the way that we're able to, you know, um, keep things encrypted as you pass the data around is is actually, you know, as you said, using public-private key cryptography, right? That's the basis of everything that we do. Uh, and, you know, it does, in fact, work the same way like you can send emails around uh, while still preserving end-to-end -end encryption. So, yeah, you know, we're not um, re-encrypting the entire calendar every single time because that would be very complex and, you know, take a lot of uh, resources. Uh, but what we do is, you know, there are uh, keys that uh, do get shared in a way that doesn't allow us ever to have access. Open source means more eyes on the code in general, but of course we need systems in place to translate those eyes into actual solutions. Tell me a little bit about the new Bug Bounty Program partnership and how you believe that's going to improve ProtonMail. Well, the partnership is new. The Bug Bounty uh, Program is not new, right? So we've actually, we've actually had a Bug Bounty Program uh, since the very beginning, in fact. Uh, I think we first launched one uh, you know, in 2014, so that's really quite you know, at the very beginning of Proton. And uh, yes, the, the, the idea right now of, you know, partnering uh, to relaunch the bug bounty program is to actually get, you know, higher quality leads to come in, right? We want to try to reach uh, the best pen testers, the best, you know, white hat hackers out there um, to really try to, you know, find flaws in Proton because I think it's essential to do that. Um, obviously, on an annual basis, we are doing third-party security audits uh, of our open source code, uh, and that does provide you know um, quite a bit of security. Uh, but uh, you know, bug bounty programs do have value. Uh, we believe in you know uh, doing that. 
Uh, and you know, uh, a lot of companies maybe would feel kind of you know, put off if someone finds a bug in their software, but we actually do want all the bugs to be found because that's how you, you ensure security. You know, you talk about your auditing process. All of your apps are open source, and you're always looking for input on potential problems like you mentioned. You guys go out of your way to hire independent security consultants to perform regular audits, and then, of course, you release those reports to the public. Tell me a little bit about that process, and tell me what you've learned from it. Well, uh, the process is we essentially provide you know, full access uh, to a, not only the source code, um, but we actually also you know, um, give them special access to be able to you know, actually attack our API and some of the infrastructure. Uh, so we do open up a lot of access when we do these uh, you know, um, third-party audits. Uh, and they, you know, depending on the firm, they go in over the course of a couple of weeks, uh, you know, much like a hacker would try to do it to compromise the system, uh, and they poke and prod, right? Uh, and we actually intentionally, you know, lower some of our shields uh, so that they can do the attacks, uh, you know, uh, in a way that even a real attacker wouldn't be able to do, uh, just so we can see if we can find flaws. Uh, and it's something that we do on a continual basis, you know, once a year um, across our entire, uh, you know, our suite of products. Um, because, you know, as time goes on, you add more code. And when you add more code, you also potentially add more bugs. Uh, and this is why it has to be a continual process. What is surveillance-based advertising, and why do you believe that we should ban it? Well, surveillance-based advertising is the business model that you know, Google and Facebook to the world uh, have been using uh, to you know, um, really make money, right? Uh, they, on one hand, they make money. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they are really destroying the definition of privacy as we know it. Uh, and I think... You know, before Google came along, before Facebook came along, uh, there was advertising. Uh, it was certainly effective. Uh, you know, business was able to function. Uh, so uh, I think there's very strong evidence to suggest that you don't need to do targeted you know, advertising. You don't need to do uh, you know, um, surveillance and data collection in order to run an advertising business. So you know, um, you know, our support for that concept is simply the belief that we think advertising can be done in a more responsible way. Uh, and ultimately lead to a healthier internet and healthier society. Do you believe that there's a way to uh, advertise or or uh, do surveillance-based advertising in a privacy-respecting way, or is it kind of an all-or-nothing thing? Either we're gathering information on people and using that to advertise to them, or we're not. Is there an in-between there at all? Well... The in-between is kind of like that, that go, right? You know, they're trying to kind of you know, be, on one hand, an advertising company, but also a privacy company. Uh, and uh, I think that, that go is proof that, you know, there is kind of a way to be in-between, right? Um, now, this, of course, is subjective. Uh, you know, my personal opinion uh, is that there shouldn't be an in-between. Uh, and, you know, I don't want there to be an in-between. And Proton definitely isn't seeking uh, to, you know, have an in-between, right? Um, but, uh, you know, I can fully respect people who try to do something in-between because at the end of the day, what DuckDuckGo is offering is still, you know, way better uh, than what Google is offering. Um, but, you know, myself personally, I prefer, you know, privacy, period, right? Uh, and I think that is fundamentally at odds in advertising because advertising is simply, you know, always going to be more effective if you have more data on your audience. 
Andy, back in September, there was a climate activist that was arrested and was using proton mail. Proton mail was then presented with a legally binding order, which you had no choice but to comply with. Now, immediately after that situation came into the public, you guys issued a transparency report to help users understand privacy and the tools that Proton Mail provides. Can you briefly describe what happened with that situation and what were some of the resulting misconceptions that people had about Proton Mail? Did Proton Mail work as it was designed to? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And on the topic of transparency reports, um, those are not new. In fact, we've been publishing transparency reports since 2015. Uh, and I think you know the surprising thing is it turns out that until recently, no one's really bothered to read them, right? Um, but you know, going back to the incident itself, uh, yeah, I think it was misunderstood in many ways. Uh, and what people don't really realize is that you know, in this situation, Proton actually you know, behaved and worked the way that it was meant to work. Uh, and we can really understand that by going back to look closely at the incident and what happened, right? Uh, so you know, um, it's out there today. It's certainly being published. But there were suspects uh, you know, in a case uh, in France uh, which were charged with three crimes, you know, trespassing. Uh, they were also charged with destruction of property uh, and also theft, right? Uh, and those obviously are also criminal offenses uh, in Switzerland. Now, um, those charges seem serious, but what they were actually doing uh, was squatting, right? Uh, and you know, a misconception out there is that you know, Proton somehow you know, led to these people getting arrested. But you, know, you and I know, and everybody else knows, that by nature of squatting, um, the location of a suspect uh, you know, was not really in doubt, right? Uh, you don't need an IP address uh, to find the location of a squatter, uh, not particularly one that has already been you know, arrested and evicted once before. So the identity of the uh, suspect was well known to the police. So that really uh, begs the question, uh, you know, if they already knew uh, you know, who the suspect was and where they were located, um, why were they looking uh, you know, to get information from Proton, right? And, and that's actually a question that um, nobody has really asked. You know, something that all the press in the world uh, more or less missed. Uh, and the answer to this actually can be found in you know, um, some of the uh, police reports, right? Uh, the reason they came uh, to Proton wasn't really to identify or find the suspect. It was actually to try to gather more corroborating evidence uh, which they could use uh, to build a case against the uh, suspect. So what they really wanted was the content of the person's inbox, you know, who he was communicating with, what they were talking about, uh, you know, the messages themselves. Uh, and this, you know, had he been using Gmail, um, all that information would have come out and that would have been quite incriminating, and he would probably be facing you know, much more serious charges, right? Uh, so in a way, I think in this case, Proton really did its job because it was proven, you know, even under the threat of a court order, that there is no way for Proton to give out the contents of you know, um, the messages that we have. And this is, in fact, what protected the user you know, in this case. Uh, so, you know, um, in many ways, I think our product worked, you know, as expected. And for me, it's even kind of a positive thing to show that, you know, even under threat of a court order, we can prove, in fact, that our encryption cannot be undone. How and why are VPNs treated differently than email from a legal uh, perspective and from your logging perspective? 
how are those two products different and, and how are the privacy, what are the privacy implications of those differences? Email is a bit like telephone, right? It's widely considered to be a communication tool. Uh, and, you know, communication tools uh, in all countries, not just in Switzerland, uh, fall under different sets of regulations that, you know, have always been codified in law for a long time, right? Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so, so that's the status uh, for, you know, email services. And it's not a Swiss thing. It's not a French thing. It's not a U.S. thing. Uh, it's just, you know, email services are considered communication tools, right? Um, a VPN, on the other hand, isn't considered a communication tool. Uh, and this is actually where I think ProtonVPN really benefits from its Swiss jurisdiction. You know, if you look at um, VPNs, say, based in other countries, right? You know, we have a lot of them. You hear of some in Sweden. You hear of many in the U.S. Um, actually, um, you know, all, all the VPNs in the world out there are claiming no logs. But what they really mean is no logs until we receive, you know, a court order, right? Uh, or in the U.S. case, until we receive a national security letter, right? In which case they will be obliged to log. Uh, and that comes from the nature of, of the technology, right? VPNs uh, are passing user traffic. So all VPNs, of course, can be forced to log. Um, what makes Proton VPN in Switzerland unique, though, is that under Swiss law, uh, you know, there is really no way today uh, with our current status to compel Proton VPN to ever log. Uh, so in many ways, Switzerland actually has a much stronger, you know, low lo no logs guarantee uh, for VPNs than other countries, and that's something that you know um, we definitely take advantage of for Proton VPN, right? Uh, if we go back to the case, uh, you know, the French suspect in this case, uh, you know, um, as people in the security industry know, uh, there's a thing called OPSEC, right? You know, your operational security is extremely important, uh, and you know, no encryption in the world is going to be able to protect you, uh, you know, uh, from being discovered if you completely neglect your OPSEC. Let's talk a little bit about OPSEC a little bit more. One of the key things that you need to understand if you're going to try to develop an operational security model is you have to understand where your threat is coming. Where is the threat vector? So, Andy, one of the things I really appreciated about ProtonMail is in addition to your transparency report in which you guys came out and said, hey, if there was a misconception uh, on how our products and services work, we want to clarify that because we want you to be an informed consumer. And that was certainly appreciated as, as somebody who swears by ProtonMail. But then you went above and beyond that. You've started publishing a series of blog posts called Decrypting, uh, uh, Decrypting Privacy. And in it, one of the first things that you talk about is identifying what a threat model is. So, Andy, could you briefly describe what, what is a threat model and what are some common models and what are your suggestions to thwart those common threat models? Yeah, happy to you know, discuss about this. So, of course, in the you know, wake of the uh, incident with, with the French suspect, you know, we really um, went back to think, okay, you know, um, how can we better protect, uh, you know, um, you know, activists, journalists, and, you know, people on our services are trusting us, uh, right? And, uh, you know, one of the first thing I think that's very important to kind of, uh, you know, for people to remember is there's a difference between, you know, privacy and anonymity, right? You know, privacy is in many countries a constitutional protected right. Uh, there is no constitutional right to anonymity, right? Uh, and also, if you, you know, have 
a service that grants you privacy, uh, you know, the granting of privacy is not really the same thing as immunity from law enforcement, right? You know, just because a service is private doesn't mean that, you know, um, it's going to go out there and say, you know, police, right? Uh, it's not possible. It's not realistic. Uh, it's never going to happen. So at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's not that Proton, you know, didn't do its best to protect privacy. It's that people fundamentally mis misunderstand what is the meaning of privacy, the difference between privacy and, 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 you know, and being anonymous. Uh, and this really comes down to threat modeling and education, right? So I think you know, the best way to protect and empower people uh, is really to educate them. Uh, and threat modeling is where you start. So that's why it's the first post in the Privacy Decrypted series. Um, because you know, if you want to stay safe, um, before you can even try to stay safe, you need to understand what am I trying to protect myself from, right? Um, because the protections that you will use uh, will depend on what you need protection from, right? Um, I would argue that you know, most of our users are not engaged in destruction of property or theft. Uh, and it probably isn't in their threat model uh, to hide from the Swiss police, right? Uh, and if you understand that, uh, then you, know, you will know that ProtonMail offers you a great protection for what you need to do, right? Now, uh, you know, if you do have that type of threat model where you need enhanced protection, uh, and again, you know, we only condone the usage of Proton Mail for legal reasons, right? Legal purposes. It's against our terms and conditions to use Proton Mail for illegal purposes, right? Uh, but let's say you did need to, uh, you know, um, hide from the government. Uh, then, if that's part of your threat model, then of course you must use Tor VPN. And it's really letting people think about threat models, understanding how they work. Uh, it's only through that process that they can take the appropriate means to be secure. Uh, because at the end of the day, you know, um, if people are using ProtonMail and throwing all caution to the wind, uh, there's nothing that we as a service can do to protect them from themselves. Absolutely, but you guys are committed to giving people the right information. And I want to thank you for that. Tell me a little bit about Privacy Decrypted. What specifically is it? How, how can it help users use ProtonMail more securely? The thing about privacy decrypted is it's not specific to Proton or Proton Mail, right? You know, we want to do something general. Uh, so it's it's um let, let's put it this way: it's it's terrible for advertising for our own services because we don't really you know um, make it specifically about uh, you know Proton, but it's really about general education, general knowledge, right? Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, privacy is an extremely complex topic, right? Um, from the regulatory and legal standpoint, it's complex. The technology is extremely complicated. Of course, we're trying to simplify that, but you know, um, we're talking complex concepts here. Uh, and at the same time, it is a topic that is ever more relevant to all of our lives. Uh, you know, we live our lives today having our privacy infringed left and right. Uh, you know, um, it is something that is, in many ways, contributing to the decline of democracy and the decay of society. Right. Uh, so it's a hugely important topic. Yet nobody understands it. Uh, it's not taught in schools. Uh, children have no idea about it. Nobody's ever read a privacy policy anymore, right? Uh, and so I think this education is extremely important. And you know, as a company in the privacy space, Proton, you know, we don't just have an obligation to protect. We have an obligation also to educate. Uh, and you know, uh, the past incident, if anything, um, has really, I think, shed light on the fact that you know, we, we as a security industry need to do more to enhance education. Uh, so, you know, that's what, that's, a, that's the, uh, motivation behind the series. And that's also why it's general, right? We want to talk about concepts that are not specific, um, to ProtonMail, 
specific to Proton and to privacy in general, uh, because it is a general topic, and it is something that I think the general population needs education on. So we also want to make it accessible, right? You know, we don't want to write at at a level that no one can understand. It needs to be accessible, but it needs to take these very complicated topics and distill it down in a way that is useful and effective and protective uh, you know, to the common citizen. Andy, is there anything else coming up? What's next for ProtonMail? What are you guys excited about? What do we have to look forward to over the next year? We've had a lot of things going on uh, in cooking uh, here in Switzerland. Uh, we've also had, of course, you know, our fair share of uh, distractions, uh, which is never you know, very helpful. Right. Uh, on my side, of course, you know, we are trying to focus the team on delivering, you know, new products, services, and, you know, better features and better quality of, you know, services to users. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think, um, um, you know, I myself am frustrated that we haven't been able to release as much and as often as we wanted to. I think a lot of, you know, users, uh, you know, share that frustration as well. Uh, that's something that, you know, um, I feel, of course. Uh, and we do want to try to accelerate and get more things out there. Uh, but at the same time, you know, due to the sensitivity of what we're building, uh, due to the threats our users are facing, you know, due to the security models and threat models we need to defend against, um, we need to be extremely careful in everything that we do, right? You know, um, it's not like a regular tech company uh, that can afford to have a data breach, afford to make a mistake on their encryption. You know, um, these are not uh, mistakes that, you know, us as an organization or our users individually can really afford to have. Uh, so it requires us to take, I think, a much higher level and standard of care uh, compared to other tech companies out there. Uh, and this means that we need to do things you know, in a more deliberate and careful way, um, which is going to be slower. That's for sure going to be you know, the case. Um, but you know, going forward, I think this year we have now uh, taken our web app and we've released it to a new version with a new UI and UX, right? Um, the same work is being done now on the mobile apps, and uh, you know those are taking longer than we expected because we have completely rewritten and redesigned them to be more secure. Uh, it's a lot of work, uh, but we do have those you know coming around the corner quite quickly. We'll probably see uh, iOS before we see Android on the mail side. Uh, of course, on you know calendar, uh, we want to get the mobile apps out there. Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's perhaps the most complex product that we've ever built uh, from an encryption standpoint. Uh, so, you know, auditing that, testing that, checking that is a huge amount of work. But we are quite, quite close to getting there. And, you know, I'm confident that probably, you know, hopefully by the end of this year, we can get the Android, you know, out of beta and fully released to everybody. Uh, then, of course, you know, also coming close behind that is uh, Proton Drive. Um, there's quite a few users, actually, that are already starting to use it because it is available today for paid users. Uh, but, you know, we really want to get that on all platforms. We want to have better support for photos. We want to have that on desktop. Uh, so there's kind of a whole avalanche of features that are coming, you know, very quickly, uh, you know, in the background that will be seeing the light of day, uh, hopefully in the next three to six months. Um, and then on the VPN side, uh, you know, we continue to develop, right? It's, it's actually a little bit insane if you think about all the things that we're doing. You know, as a small company, that's a huge number of projects. Uh, but I'm also happy that on the VPN we've made tremendous progress. Uh, the announcement actually came out earlier this week. Uh, we have you know, fully released WireGuard support now uh, to the entire world. It was in beta for three months, but this is actually a pretty short beta uh, as far as Proton is concerned. And we're happy to do that in a you know, secure and audited way. So I think um, a lot of things uh, happening. Uh, you know, um, thanks to all the, all the users and people in the community for their patience. You know, we understand you want us to be faster. And uh, we are definitely working on that. 
Dr. Andy, and he is the CEO and founder of Proton Mail, making the internet more secure, starting with email. You can learn more at protonmail.com. Dr. Andy, and thank you so much for taking the time to join us. You know you always have an open invitation. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Great. Thanks for having me. In the news this week, the PinePhone Pro is here. The PinePhone Pro costs just $399 plus whatever shipping and import taxes you have. For that, you're going to get a 6-inch display, 1440 by 720 in-cell IPS display protected by Gorilla Glass. It's powered by a 6-core rock chip RK3399S, a 64-bit SOC running at 1.5 gigahertz, a 4-core ARM Mali T860 GPU running at 500 megahertz, and that's complemented by 4 gigabytes of LPDDR RAM and 128 gigabytes of eMMC flash storage. So you can compare this uh, to your mid-range Android phone, on the rear of the phone, you're going to get a 4G LTE phone, a 13 megapixel Sony IMX258 camera. On the front, a 5 megapixel selfie camera. Charging is accomplished via USB Type-C, which includes support for a 15-watt fast charging and a 3,000-watt Samsung, uh, 3,000, I wish, 3,000 milliamp Samsung battery. Uh, there's also an optional micro SD card slot and a courage, excuse me, not a courage jack, a headphone jack. It takes courage to put a headphone jack in phones these days. Now, if you depend on any sort of proprietary mainstream application, obviously this is not the phone for you. This is uh, going to ship running Manjaro Linux, Manjaro Arm, uh, using the KDE Plasma desktop environment. Now, I would tell you this. I have a Pine phone. I also have a Pine book and I have a Pine book pro. I tell you, I would tell you that unequivocally Pine absolutely delivers a tremendous amount of value over what you spend. So if you spend $399, I'm convinced you're getting twice that much phone. And if all I get out of my Pine phone pro, which I absolutely ordered and so did my wife, all we get out of that is a more robust experience than the experience we're already getting on our Pine phones then that's successful. But the fact that Pine is able to do this just a year after shipping the Pine phone, this is absolutely fantastic. The Pine phone pro is designed to be user repairable. It's designed to be able to swap spare parts and it's sold of course in the Pine store. You can learn more at pine64.com. It's a highly configurable handset. It runs Linux, the default operating system. Uh, absolutely fantastic. A huge thanks to Pine for putting this out. Um, and Ubuntu 21.10 is out. It is bringing a developer focus and, of course, GNOME 40. And so it makes its way onto the scene this week. Uh, with the focus of developers, uh, the all-new PHP 8 and GCC 11 work out of the box of this version. PHP 8 was released in June of this year and is one of the most exciting features in the conclusion of Just-In-Time, the Just-In-Time compiler. So 21.10 brings version 5.3 of the Linux kernel, adding support for kernel electronic fence, or K-fence, um, as well as keeping the overhead low while still detecting most common memory errors. It's also enabled by default, and 21.10 will randomize the memory location of the kernel stack at each system call entry on both ARM64 and AMD 64. So 2110 is available for download. You can get it for x86. You can also get images for the Raspberry Pis. Check that out at Ubuntu.com. Steve, anything else before we close out the hour tonight? 
No, I think we uh, we covered all of the emails, and uh, we'd like to get more emails, actually. Um, it's nice to get a nice string of themed emails in, and so we're asking again for if you, if you have some sort of theme that you'd like or some sort of topic, it would be nice to kind of get, um, hey, Noah, maybe we can do some sort of polling eventually where we can send people to a website and be like, hey, here's the things we're thinking about talking about. Which one do you want to talk about next? Yeah, that's, a, fa- that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, we'll have to work on that a little bit. But for now, if you send in the email, we structure the show around your feedback. So send an email live at asknoahshow.com. Steve goes through those meticulously every week. And of course, if we find a couple of emails that address kind of the same idea, then we turn that into a segment. And we can serve the community better. But it all starts with you sending an email. Music in our ears means we're out of time. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.